Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guests on today's podcast are two BYU students, Grace Solberg and Faith Williams. Welcome to the podcast, you two. Thanks. (laughs) We're going to talk about Black Latter-day Saints on this podcast and how to better meet the needs of Black Latter-day Saints um, and better to see their contributions to the body of Christ. Grace Solberg is here. She's black. Mm-hmm. Um, a student at BYU and participated, um, gave the prayer at a recent um, black immigration panel at BYU that uh, I read a couple stories in that panel, in spite of the very best efforts of the panelists and the administrator, there's some questions asked that were really upsetting to a lot of people there. Mm-hmm. So we're going to kind of talk about what happened there as a learning experience to help all of us do better. Um uh, just more background on Grace. She is a history major, wants to become a history professor and teach 20th century American history, and especially how the media affects race issues, which I think is a wonderful, I recognize the media's role a lot right now in polit- politics and in other ways to influence opinions. So I love that major of yours, Grace. With us also is Faith Williams from Texas, grew up um, nor- about an hour north of Houston in what city, Grace? Uh, I mean, Faith? <laughs> um, Huntsville. Huntsville. Right, yeah. Um, Faith is white. I wouldn't usually tell everybody everybody's race, except <laughs> you can't see anybody. So I'm just, I'm white. Faith is white. Grace is black. Um, Faith is a sociology major um, and wants to have a career in public policy. Right and especially talk about racism in our culture and how to improve that. Do you want to just explain a little bit more about what you want to do with your career? Sure. I think that we don't always, or we often don't, maybe never realize um, the way that racism is embedded into the structure of our country. Um, And our policies have been kind of sneaky. Sometimes they've worn a mask and sometimes they haven't. But in both cases, they've done a lot to hold our country back from making real progress. And so in order to make that progress, we need to change some of that structure. That's great. And I've said this before, but in my own journey, I haven't known how much racism I've just picked up innocently or non-innocently. And I had to meet black people to sort of understand. And I still have work to do. I sometimes say I, I can take a cholesterol test and get a number for my cholesterol, but I recognize it's hard for me to, to know how much racism I inherently have to the points you just made faith. So I hope we hear from Grace, most of this podcast, um, because I hope that it just helps us understand how we can do better. Um, Cause our doctrine is all alike unto God and everybody should have the same experience at church. And I recognize that black Latter-day Saints may not be having the same experience at church, or at BYU, and we just need to do better. Um, anything, is that okay for an introduction, Grace? Mm-hmm. Tell us about your major. We heard a little bit from Faith, but just talk about what you want to do with your career. Yeah, so I would love to, after I graduate from BYU, to go on to get a PhD in American history. Um, and I would just love to be able to teach about race relations in the United States, kind of starting at the turn of the century in the 20th century, and then kind of going up to today and how racial politics and the media have worked to perpetuate stereotypes or to kind of influence people's like racial ideology and how they view the world. And I just want to be able to teach people in a, in a university setting about those issues. So Cool. 
I hope my grandkids, my kids are already <laughs> almost out of college, but I hope some of my posterity is in your class. That's great. <laughs> um, talk about, let's just go right to BYU. Why did you decide to go to BYU? Initially, I didn't want to go to BYU. I had applied when I was a senior in high school because I was like, well, I might as well. You know, I live in Utah. It's might as well. Um, and then I got in, but I also got in to the University of Oregon, which is where I'd always wanted to go. In Eugene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was like it was kind of like my dream ever since I was little. I don't know why. It was just like I always wanted to go there and I got in and I got this great scholarship and I was like ready to go. But then I just, I, everyone says it, but I just felt like I shouldn't. And I was like, you need to go to BYU. And I was like, I'm not even that spiritual right now. I'm not that good with the church right now. And my mom was like, are you sure you want to go down there? And I just felt like it's where I needed to be. And I'm really glad that I made the decision that I did. Uh, my brother is a history professor at the University of Oregon. Oh, it would awesome. be really <laughs> ironic if you were yeah. there and in his class and he teaches um, 20th century American history, specifically oh, wow. about Native Americans. So awesome. anyway, that didn't happen. Talk how many, I love that you just acted on that impression. Um, and I love that you said I wasn't particularly okay with the church. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's honest. And a lot, that's a pretty, I honor people that get, are in that space. It can be mm -hmm. complicated. How many years have you been at BYU, Grace? I started in the fall of 2017. So it's been like coming up on three years. And I know you're a TA and that's how you met Faith because you're with your TA right now, yeah. Faith, is that right? <laughs> yes, she is. Um, so you're a pretty senior student there at this point. Mm -hmm. Talk about just what it's like to be a Black Latter-day Saint at BYU, just however you want to define that and share that with our listeners. It's very interesting. Um, there's so many great things that have happened to me at BYU and I love BYU, but it's also kind of isolating because you look around campus and I've noticed throughout the years, I see more and more black students. I've noticed that there are more around, but it's still like once in a blue moon when I see somebody and it's like, Oh, be my friend new woods come together. But, um, it just is kind of odd because just no one looks like you. No one understands what you're going through. And I mean, I've lived in Utah my whole life. So I guess I'm kind of used to the idea of being the only like brown person around, but it's just even more isolating when it's just like, there truly is no other brown people around. And this is a university and there's not very much diversity. Um, and so, yeah, it's just kind of, this odd experience because it's so many things go so right and you feel so at home, but at the same time you don't. And so it's just this weird dichotomy. Explain this idea. No one understands. Um, just like whenever something happens or a racial incident happens, like I, luckily I have like friends of color who understand like my emotions or why I'm upset. But sometimes when I tell my white friends why I'm upset, they're like, they just don't understand why or they might think I'm overreacting or they're like, was that that person's intent? Did they mean to be racist? Maybe they're just ignorant. Maybe they didn't really mean it. Or I think, you know, you're kind of taking this out of proportion. And so it's, they don't, it's sometimes it feels like there's no one to talk to but yourself because no one else truly gets it. So 
And I've been guilty of that. Just like that language, you just, that, dis, that conversation you described, I've been guilty of doing those conversations where I'll dismiss somebody's pain mm-hmm. instead of just validating it and trying to really understand how painful it is. I'll, I'll give other people the benefit of the doubt, but I realize that diminishes your experience and you have to not only feel pain, but then you have to prove to me that you actually feel pain mm-hmm. and I've just added to your pain. Mm-hmm. And I sense your friend Faith gets that, and, mm-hmm. and there's other people and get that, but I sense, I sense especially black people get that because you're walking mm-hmm. the same road. Mm-hmm. Do you have any examples of that, just where you've had an experience where you people may not understand? Yeah, I there was one incident that happened at FAG. Um, it was over a little bit over a year ago, um, and... It like without going into detail, it was just pretty bad. Like I specifically didn't get called the N word, but the N word wow. was used. And so, and like, I was like really shocked in the moment and I didn't say anything. And afterwards, like I was asking the people around, like, like what just happened here? And I told my friend and she just kind of blew me off. And that was upsetting because she was like my best friend. And I was like, you don't even get it. And Luckily, I was able to go over to my black friend's house and she just held me while I cried because I was so frustrated with what just happened. But in the moment and then afterwards, I was able to talk to my other friend and she learned to just kind of listen and understand like why what happened was wrong and why I was so upset and we're doing just fine now. But in the moment, she was just like, but it was a joke. And I was like, it's not a joke. And so it's just kind of hard when some people don't understand like how it truly makes you feel and how it affects me. So. Talk about, I love what you just said. Talk about, it's not a joke. Mm-hmm. What does that mean for our listeners? Um, I would just say like, anytime you're saying like a racial slur or t- going off of a stereotype, even if it's considered like a good stereotype or whatever you might want to think it's, it's just hurtful because it paints us all as like one people. Like it just makes it seem like all black people are this monolith that act the same and do the same things. And so it's not, it's just not funny because, and especially like when the N word is used, it's like, yes, I know black people use it all the time, but when you use it, I don't know if you're joking or if you think you're comfortable with me and you think you can say it, or if it has malicious intent, I never know because I can't go into your mind. So for me, it kind of puts me in this odd position. Like, I don't know if you're joking or not. I mean, you shouldn't joke about it anyways, but I truly don't know. So it kind of just makes me feel unsafe because I don't know where you stand with me. Uh, Thank you for sharing that. That's a great one. And I love, I wrote down, that's quite a difference between blew me off and held me when I cried mm-hmm. as far as bearing someone's burden mm-hmm. and ministering and comfort. Those are very different feelings for mm-hmm. you. Um, and I like the way you said you needed to cry. Mm-hmm. Um, to, I think that just helps me understand how painful that joke was mm-hmm. that you needed someone if they're going to meet your emotional needs and bear your burden, um, that they're going to hold you when I cried. Mm-hmm. Other examples that that have been that you want to share with our listeners about this idea no one understands. Um, I I trying to think of like more specific examples, but I think it's just no one gets what it's like 
to be brown and to be physically different. Like I've even heard some people who are like white passing. So they are like ethnic minorities, but they like to most people, they would just assume they're white. They're just like, well, do you really think that person looked at you that way because it was a racial thing? Or do you think they really said that to you because it was a racial thing? And I'm like, even you don't understand because you don't know what it's like to not be able to turn it off. Like you can pass and go through this world and no one would know. But it's despite what anyone says, it's the first thing they see when they look at me. They immediately see someone who looks different. And even though maybe that's not a bad thing to them and they don't see me as any less than, it's the first thing they see. And I can't ever turn that off. And so it's just being able to realize like, I cannot stop being who I am. And there's a lot of issues that like my skin tone brings out that I have nothing to do with, but I have to carry that with me wherever I go. And so. Um, yeah, I've, I, it would be interesting to be black for a week at BYU. Mm-hmm. When I go down to BYU, I'm just aware I'm older, yeah. <laughs> but I'm still yeah. white. Um, but to be black at BYU mm-hmm. and, to, and to, do you feel like, I mean, I would guess people look at me and, mm-hmm maybe turn a little bit more. And I just, Mm -hmm. I would guess that there's a lot of that that just goes on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of like stares, a lot of looks. I mean, even if it's in, I mean, I'm sure a lot of time people are just like looking, you know, you look around, you make eye contact with people sometimes, but, and I understand that that's what it is most of the time, but there are some people who do just kind of stare at you or like people that come up and touch your hair or like, will ask you really, kind of ignorant questions. Like people ask me all the time, my freshman year, like, Oh, are you on the track team? Or are you on the basketball team? I'm like, I'm five too. Why would I be on the basketball team? Like, and so I do think people just inherently see you different, even if it's not in like a racist way. Like it is the first thing that people see when they look at you. What do you wish people would see when they see Grace? I just want to be a regular person. Like when you look at any other white person, you don't usually have any preconceived notions about who they are or where they come from or what they must enjoy. And so I would just like the opportunity to just to see me as just, I mean, yes, my blackness affects who I am and I'm proud of that. And I love who I am. I love my natural hair, all these things, but just see me as just grace first and then me being black second. Love that faith. Just tell us your journey to, as we visited beforehand with Faith, I just recognize this is a really thoughtful woman who has stepped in this space and really cares. Just share with us our your journey to sort of be in this space of wanting to help people of different races or however you want to define this space. Um, one thing that I've been thinking about recently, I grew up, we talk about in sociology, like white spaces and black spaces, white spaces being like a room full of white people or America or BYU or just institutions and places dominated by um, white people as the racial majority and black spaces would be um, places where black people are the racial majority. And I had opportunities growing up to be in black spaces. My parents intentionally um, were very thoughtful about helping me just see people and love people in that way. And I was really grateful for that. But as I've grown up, I've realized how temporary those experiences were. And there is a sense of discomfort that comes 
from being as a white person in a black space. Like that feels kind of tricky sometimes, but I realized how I just got to self-elect for it to be over. The event ended and I left. Um, and I've just realized more and more that to be black at BYU, you'd never leave. To be black in America, you can never leave. In order to reach your reach your goals, to accomplish the things that you want to accomplish, you have to navigate a system that is white. You have to exist in a white space. And I think that as white people that we really need to be more thoughtful about the implications of that. And like Grace said, we'll never, we're never going to understand. She said, nobody understands me. And we need to understand that we'll never understand. And I think that that is one of the first most important steps to take as a white person trying to understand people of color. I like self-elect to be over. So you can sort of step out of this space. You can be an ally, but you can step out. Why? That's not possible for Grace. Mm-hmm. And you probably wouldn't want to step out of this space, but you'd like to have this space be more healing and mm-hmm. and helpful. Talk about are there stories in the uh, if you look at the life of Jesus Christ and his ministry, are there stories faith that resonate in your return missionary from Argentina? Are there stories that resonate from the New Testament that sort of give you a doctrinal foundation or examples of what Christ did that help us would help us better meet the needs of of Latter-day Saints that are on the margins? I mean, that's a beautiful question because that's what Jesus did. That's who Jesus was and that's who Jesus is. And that's a part of Jesus that we kind of choose to focus on when it's convenient and that we're really good at ignoring whenever it makes us uncomfortable. So when we feel like we're on the margins, then we remember that Christ ministered to the adulterous woman that he... He always found these people and he loved them and he healed them. But whenever we're the ones showing up with the rocks in our hands, ready to stone someone, it's harder for us to realize that Christ is showing up for everyone. And it's not just us whenever we need him. That was really good. Thanks. When we're on the margins, we like those parables because they apply to us. But when we're not on the margins, we're not as comfortable with those parables because it reminds us of our responsibility, and that makes us uncomfortable sometimes to people on the margins. Is that kind of what yeah. I... I'm guilty of that. Me too. <laughs> same. <laughs> um, Grace, are there... That same question to Faith, are there, are there favorite parables for you that is part of the life of Christ and his example? Um, I, this is kind of like an interesting way to think about it, but I just love how Christ is always like asking for the children to come to him. And I heard somebody say the other day that as like a person of color in the church, you kind of feel like the stepchild that no one loves. Like you're allowed to come to the party, but like, you're not really supposed to be there. And so like, for me, when like, I know that I'm Christ. Like, I, he, he's my brother. I'm a daughter of God. And so when he's like, I want the children to come to me, it just reminds me, like, I am not that outcast. And maybe I am in church in some ways, but he wants me to be there. And he calls to those people that are, you know, vulnerable that, you know, he wants them to come to him. So I just always, it just is comforting to me. Like, I am not, you know, I am not 
an outsider to him. I am not less than to him. Like he wants me to come to him. So Love that. I do look at these parables of Christ that to me are timeless. So I think he saw our day and he thought, what can I teach from my day that will be timeless and apply to help my followers in the 21st century? I guess that's what we're in. Um, and I look at, there's so many of those parables that cause me to reflect. I think of the Canaanite woman sometimes, and she had so much faith in this. She's Gentile. Everything about her screams marginalized. Mm-hmm. And here she is with this great faith coming to this Jewish God, and the disciples try to shoo her away. She makes his way, and he kind of, I think, adds to her burden a little bit in some of that at first. And But then she has so much faith, she, and she even seems to protect her daughter by not bringing her daughter. I'm interested that her goal was to heal her daughter, but she, she didn't bring her daughter. And maybe that was for her daughter's safety. But I've thought... And then Christ, of course, heals her daughter because of the faith of the Canaanite woman. So I think... Who are the Canaanite women and or men in my day, and who am I trying to shoo away? And and you're right, Faith. If I feel like the Canaanite woman, then that parable may really apply to me. But if I'm going to really be a disciple, I've got to think, you know, what what am I doing to shoo somebody away that's pleading for help and has great faith? Um, any more comments on that before we move to this BYU event? Okay. Um, talk about, and this shows my ignorance, it's, it's, we're recording this in February and it's, tell us the name of this month. It's Black, Black History, History Month. I was going <laughs> to say Black, I didn't get, and tell us the history of Black History Month. Do you know how long it's been going on? And I'm, sh- I'm not sure the exact it's been going start on. date. Um, I think it's only been like an institutionalized thing in like our country for not like so long, maybe like at most, like probably 40 years, like I would say at most. Um, but yeah, it's just a month for us to be able to celebrate our history and have kind of the spotlight for two seconds. Um, and I know like there's kind of a lot of debate about it. Like, why do we need this? Why is it important? Is it for African-Americans? Is it for the whole black diaspora? Like, I know there's a lot of kind of is controversy that comes with it, but. Tell us about this event at BYU, Mm -hmm. Um, the name of the event, where it was held. Mm -hmm. Um, Just share with our listeners that haven't heard anything about this at BYU. Okay. So for Black History Month, um, the Africana Studies program primarily at BYU likes to put on a lot of events. So there's a lot of musical events. There's perspectives that the students help run, which is like a show that they do once a month or like during Black History Month. Um, And then they also have like lectures and panel series. And so this particular panel was on black immigrants. And so there was a teacher that was speaking, a UVU student, and then two BYU students who are all black immigrants. And we were just, they were supposed to be asked questions about like what their experience is like in America, what it's like in the church, what it's like, you know, at BYU for those that applied to. Um, And the system that they used was an anonymous like app, basically. Um, and so only those that had the app could see the questions as they were coming in, but we couldn't see who said them. They were just like pop up. Um, and there was a lot of great questions that were being asked. And there was a lot of questions that I could tell were just ignorant questions, but then there was some that were definitely like dog whistle questions that were like meant to be malicious. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of like the basis of what happened. How many were there? 
there was probably around like a hundred people. It was in like a smaller little auditorium and it was primarily people that were like of student age. Most adults that I saw there were adults that we knew that were professors or just other affiliated faculty with BYU. If I had met you as you were walking in, what were your hopes for that event? I just wanted to learn more about their experience. Like that's not something that I get to hear about every day. Like I barely learn about African-American experiences. And then so to be able to see what it's like, like to come from Haiti or to come from even like being black in Europe, what is that like? Or coming from Africa, like what is it like for them to come here and to have that experience of being kind of racialized in a different way? And so I was just hoping to learn from them. And Faith, were you able to attend? I was not. <laughs> but you're aware of everything. I was not able to attend. I was looking forward to the event, but at the last minute I couldn't make it. But it's true what Grace said. It's just it's an experience that's very unique and that um, doesn't get a lot of airtime, I guess you could say. And that being the experience of black immigrants in right. particular. Uh-huh. Talk about, um, you used a term here that I like, the dog whistle questions. Mm-hmm. E- explain that for our listeners. The best way to explain it is that most people, when they hear those questions or those phrases, they're going to be like, why was that offensive? Like, I don't understand. But when you know the history behind those questions and the context, you understand that they are very inappropriate and that they were said to be like rude and offensive and they were said with the intent to hurt. So in most cases, it's probably better that you don't understand that it's hurtful because that means that you were not picking up on that dog whistle. But for us, like for all the black people in the audience, we do exactly why they ask those questions. So do you want to give an example or does that just add to your load to give an example of a dog whistle question? No, it's fine. I can go through some of the questions that were actually asked. So one of them was, what is the percentage of African-Americans on food stamps? And so first I would just say that question isn't even applicable to the panel because the panel is supposed to be about black immigrants. We're not talking about African-Americans. So for one, that question was just not even related to what the panel was about. But that also just assumes that all of these black people in America are on welfare and it's racializing welfare when the majority of people that are on welfare in this country are white. And so it, it comes from a place of trying to perpetuate that stereotype and there's nothing wrong with being on welfare, but it make, but when you racialize it in that way, it makes it seem like there's something wrong. Like your community has to be on welfare and food stamps because there's something wrong with you. And so that's why that question was so hurtful is because one, it didn't even apply, but two, it's racializing something that our government does to try to help citizens. So great answer. Any more of those you want to share? Yeah. Um, I think probably the worst one was why do African-Americans hate the police? If they would obey the law and do what they say, we wouldn't have this problem. Wow. And I think most people reading that could be like, yeah, that obviously was like with the intent to hurt. Again, doesn't apply to the panel, but too, like most African-Americans don't hate the police. We don't, when people say Black Lives Matter, we're not saying that nobody else's lives matter, that we don't appreciate the police. It's just saying there is an issue 
with mass incarceration with black men and black people are targeted by certain police officers. And so we're not trying to to brand all of the police force as like these evil people. We love them and we respect them for what they do. And there's plenty of black male and female officers in this country doing great work. It's just bringing knowledge to this issue. And so when you say that we all hate the police, it it like furthers this divide that we don't want to be there. We want to get along. We want there to be cohesion and to feel safe, but it's just, there's these certain instances and a few bad cops that are doing these things. And so that's why we're trying to speak out about it to protect ourselves and to bring awareness to this issue. And it's also assuming that black people don't follow the law. I'm like, we, people follow the law all the time. You know, people get arrested for very stupid things when you're black, you know, you get pulled over more, even when you didn't do anything wrong, you get watched in the store, even though you're not doing anything wrong. And so I think when we perpetuate that idea that any racial minority doesn't follow the law, like we're looking, like we're just waiting for you to break the law. Like everyone's just like, Oh, 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 let's see when they're going to do it. Let's see when they're going to do it. And so it's just kind of offensive to hear that, that you would think that I'm just innately trying to break the law or that it's a part of my nature and I'm eventually going to slip up. So that's Those are great ones. I tweeted out, I'm looking at my old Twitter feed, but this is a quote from Brene Brown that I'll, you have to tell me if you are okay with it, Grace, but mm-hmm. it, I liked it. It said black lives matter is a movement to rehumanize black citizens. All lives matter, but not all lives need to be pulled back into moral inclusion. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I think that's exactly true. It's there's a history in this country of dehumanizing black people and just and there's a lot of literature about the things that have been done to the black body in various ways and how it's almost not seen as human. Um, And so, yeah, Black Lives Matter isn't saying that nobody else matters. It's just saying that we're hurting right now and we want people to be aware that something's wrong. And one of my teachers always said, like, when you say like, oh, Australia's on fire, like we're not saying that any other fire isn't important. We're just saying that this one is very bad and we want to help this one out. So it's like, it's not saying that none of the rainforests matter or none of the fires matter. It's just saying we're just choosing to put the spotlight on this one so that we can help it and fix it. And then we can keep going on from case to case. It's good. I I have been guilty of this all lives matter that say we're all children of God, everybody matters. But then that quote helped me just to recognize the history, the reality of the history, past and current, for black member, black um, Americans, black Latter-day Saints. And so then I think, what's my responsibility as a Latter-day Saint to bear, mourn, and comfort if I dismiss your experience and your pain and the difficult road you walk, then I think I'm not doing what God would want me to do. And I think, mm-hmm. and I used to t- say this, I, I recognize that I need to, I, we used to have teenagers home, now they're all out of the house. I used to say sometimes I need, if I want to know how black teenager feels, I, I can't ask my white teenagers, sons, how a black teenager feels. I've got to talk to black teenagers. Mm-hmm. And that sort of led me to the trap of unearned opinions, which is a feeling that I shouldn't form opinions about groups of people until I meet with people mm-hmm. In those groups, I remember seeing a Starbucks video um, of a of a guy in in North in Virginia, white guy, maybe my age, and he wondered if he was a racist. Mm. 
And he ended up reaching out to a black reporter in a call-in, and she thought it was going to go sideways, but he wanted to know what he could do to eliminate racism. Mm -hmm. And she said, you got to go read books of black history and you got to go meet black people. Mm -hmm. And then this Starbucks video um, showed them reuniting and the friendship that developed between what would usually be a divided divided friendship was common ground because of his humility mm-hmm. and the and the suggestions that she gave. Um, let's go back to the any comments on that before we go back to BYU. No, I think that was great. Other questions that were difficult, or do you, or questions that were helpful. Um, some of the questions that were helpful, I don't think it got asked at the panel cause we kind of ran out of time, but like somebody asked them, like, what is your experience like relating to African-Americans? Because I think we like to think that all black people are African-Americans and that it's just like, we all have this same culture, but we're so incredibly diverse and even just African-Americans throughout the country, depending on where you are, have such a unique culture. And so for them to come to America and automatically be labeled as African-American, even though they're ethnically not and culturally not, like, what is that like? You know, and so I thought that was a great question because it's true. It's just like, if you're a white person in Europe and you go to a different country, like it's going to be a different experience for you because it's a totally different place. And so to see like what it's like for them. So I thought that was a great question. Um, Yeah. And then there was just questions about like, what is it like, do you feel like you become racialized? Like, what is that like coming from a black space to a white space? Um, and so there was a lot of great Explain questions. Explain that for me. I don't understand that question completely. Yeah. So like, um, like a black space is just kind of like where you are the majority. So if somebody's coming okay. from an African country where the white people are the major- minority and everyone they've seen in their life that is in positions of power or just like family member, like they're all, they look like them and they're just kind of all the same. But then to come somewhere where you are suddenly the minority for the first time, like, what is that like to experience that? You know, I've always lived in Utah, so that's just kind of my natural experience. I'm used to that. But for someone that's never experienced that before, I'm sure it's incredibly jarring. Like I remember for a school trip, we went to Alabama and Georgia. And when we got out at the Atlanta airport, we walked out and I was like, I have never seen so many black people in my life. And even I'm black. And I was kind of like shocked. Like I was like, this is so weird. Like I've never experienced this before. And so like, that's the same thing for them. Like when they've just are used to that and they go somewhere and it's like new and they're the only black person. It's like, that has to be kind of this weird out of body experience. So You've got a good name for a reason, Grace, extending <laughs> grace. Talk about, did the event end early because of these um, difficult questions? They di- It didn't end early um, because, I mean, the panelists couldn't see the questions because they were on their phones, so they had no idea this was happening. It was just us in the audience and the moderator. Um, and I don't think a lot of the faculty really understood what was happening because I think they thought that audience members couldn't see the questions as they came in, that just the moderator could. And so I think there was just a lot of miscommunication as to what was happening. But well, the monitor moderator was great and she didn't ask any of these like questions to the panel that were inappropriate. And so they felt like it went really well and like they didn't get asked anything that they shouldn't. Um, but it was just kind of afterwards, like I was walking home, like talking to my friend. I was like, wow, I can't believe that happened. Like, that's so unfortunate because they did, the panelists did do such a great job, but then it was just kind of 
this weird experience. Like it was so great on this hand and then so horrible on this other side with these questions that it was just like, it's really polarizing experience. How did that affect you emotionally? I was so distraught and like, there was also so many things that had happened that day too. Like, I think if that was the only thing that would have happened that day, I would have been fine. But like I had in class, like I was hearing experiences from people. Like there was a girl that I, it's in one of my classes that was saying, there's been multiple times when white men on campus will come up to her and yell at her because she speaks on the phone in Spanish to her mother. And they tell her to like, go back to, she's, her whole family are U.S. citizens. Like they're, they're from here. And so for her, and so I heard that story and there was various other things that had happened. And so it just all piled up. And so by the time I got home, I was just like exhausted and just like done. Like I was like, this has been so much in one day. Um, and it was just like the last thing I needed to happen. Cause I was so excited to go to the panel. I was like, okay, all of this has happened today, but I'm going to go and I'm going to be able to learn and it's going to be a good time, be with my friends. And then for that to happen there, it was just like the last thing that needed to happen. Oh. That's painful. And I think one of the things that makes, I mean, you, you know, you have to answer this question is maybe the hope that we're making progress and mm-hmm. that we're putting this behind us and we're, and and then to hear a day like that recognizes how much work we have mm-hmm. to do and how many difficult situations are still happening. Mm-hmm. This became kind of a, the local news picked up on this. Yeah. Did that surprise you or were you, and you, how did you feel about that? Are you glad that there's some attention mm-hmm. being drawn to this? I was really surprised because I had like no followers on Twitter and I was like, this was just kind of more for me to put it down on paper kind of type of a thing. And then I went to bed after I posted it and I woke up and was like, I don't know what's going on. This is kind of popping off. Um, And then, yeah, I just started getting contacted by reporters and things. And I'm glad that it did because it gave validation to the lot of like to what black saints feel and like what black students feel, because we say all the time that there are people that are doing these things that are inappropriate and unchristlike and against the gospel, but nobody believes us because we don't have proof. Like, right. Like we can't name the people who are doing this. We can't pull up, you know, I don't have proof that somebody said or did this, but then for this to happen and to have documented proof, like this is happening on our campus you know, it's unfortunate, but it's a good thing to be able to say, like, here you go. Like we said this was happening and now you can't deny it anymore because we can show you the proof that this is going on. So. Yeah. I'm going to read your tweet because okay. I <laughs> saw it and retweeted it. It was done on the 6th of February and everybody wants to follow Grace Solberg, <laughs> G-R-A-C-E for Grace and S-O-E-L-B-E-R-G. Currently sitting on the floor in tears, something that was supposed to be an uplifting event celebrating Black History Month and Black immigrants was tainted by overt racism. Tonight, BYU hosted a Black immigrant panel and took anonymous questions from the audience on Slido, which I think, and then you can, I think there's multiple, because Twitter can only Mm -hmm. let you do so many, and I won't read all of those, but it just, as I read through that, um... We must all fight to be anti-racist and fight so that bigoted people don't feel entitled to walk into black spaces only to seek to destroy them with their hatred. That's really strong, Mm -hmm. but very appropriate. Mm -hmm. Um, What are your thoughts, Faith, as you're hearing this conversation? And I assume you've read her. Yeah. (laughs) I assume you've read um, Grace's Twitter. 
Yeah, she did a great job of kind of expressing the situation um, and helping people understand what had happened. I've heard a lot of white people come from a place, it's a place of compassion, but and offer a lot of mercy to these anonymous people who submitted these questions. Mm -hmm. And it is incredibly frustrating to me because those questions were not asked out of ignorance. I don't know if they thought that they were funny, but their intention was not like to crack a good joke um, because the way that they did it was uninvited and disrespectful and, and it was intentional and it was anonymous, which kind of adds another layer to that. So I just like feel like we need to be very clear that these people were being racist and we don't need to be afraid of saying that and recognizing that, that some people walked into a safe space for people to share unique and vulnerable experiences and they attacked them emotionally um, by being racist. Really well said. Go back to just a little bit what you said where some people, even out of compassion, were defending these people and why that is why that is wrong or just adds to the problem. Um, well, white privilege is like kind of a um, an important topic, you know, as as white people, as we realize some of the things that seem like normal parts of our lives that are privileges, um, like how Grace talked about as a black person being watched in a store, being pulled over by a police, living your life without these experiences, or just living your life being seen first as faith before being recognized as my racial identity or being profiled in that way. Those are all white privileges. And one really important white privilege is to plead ignorance. Um, black people and people of color aren't given the opportunity to plead ignorance. So whenever our first thought when a white person does something hateful is maybe they just didn't know, it's true that maybe they just didn't know. And it's always good to extend mercy and love and grace to people. But we need to understand that um, what we're extending is also a privilege that whether we're aware of it or not um, is attached to their race because of the structure upon which this country is built and our history and our own biases that that we've been fed. That was great. Thanks. Um, you got a really cool voice. Both of you do, but you really, you know, what you said was really helpful. I didn't know straight privilege. I mean, straight privilege is a different thing. I didn't know white privilege. And I recognize privilege to me are all the things that I was born with that I didn't earn. It's my definition of privilege. And... I just recognize I have a lot of that, being male, being older, being white, being fourth-generation Mormons, being straight. It's just all this privilege in society and our church that comes with me. So as I've tried to recognize that, I think, what am I going to do with my privilege? And then I go to my baptism covenants, and I say it's to bear more in comfort. Mm -hmm. um, and I love, sometimes I love the song Bridge Over Troubled Water by... Mm -hmm. And you guys remember that. I'm glad you, it's such a song from my day that I'm glad. But some of that imagery, I'm sailing right behind you. Your day has come to shine. Um, I love that vigil imagery of an ally that my job is to, I want you to shine, Grace. I don't want to shine because I'm a good ally. 
And your sense of that too, Faith, I can just sense that this isn't about, even when we started this podcast, Faith says, well, Grace is going (laughs) to, it's her moment to shine. But I think that's our job with white privilege or with status is to, is to create the visual imagery in that song. I'm sitting right behind you means I'm here if you need me. Mm-hmm. I'm right there with you. I haven't, to use some of Faith's words, I haven't um, stepped back out of the space because I can step out whenever I want to. You mm-hmm. have to keep sailing on this boat mm-hmm. and I can go on land anytime and just sort of step out of the space. But it's sort of like, I'm going to be right behind you, mm-hmm. but you're shining. You know, I'm going to get out of the way and have you shine. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is our job with privilege mm-hmm. um, as best we can. More thoughts on that? Is that okay? Anything to add yeah. or subtract from that? Yeah, I mean, I have a few things just to add about Good. privilege. Like Good like you said, it's grace. things that you didn't necessarily earn. Like, So I like to think of them as like unearned privileges. And everyone has unearned privileges. You know, even though I'm disadvantaged because I'm black and I'm a female, Um, I have the privilege of being Christian. That's what's most acceptable in society is to be Christian. I come from, you know, a middle, upper middle class background. I realize that that's a privilege. I'm I'm in college. That's a privilege. Like I've had all these great experiences. So there's things I didn't earn that I was just born into. And so that's, um, so I think everyone has that, you know, are you able to use your legs? Can you speak? Can you hear? There's all sorts of things that we're born with that we didn't earn and it's okay to have privilege. It's just, how are you going to use that to better the lives of others? Because you do have that privilege. So I think sometimes we think privilege is like a dirty word, but it's like, we all have certain privileges. It's just that some people have more than others. And then when it comes to white privilege, I think some people get defensive because they're like, well, I'm white and my life's still hard. And like, I still go through trials and it's like, yes, you do. Like I acknowledge that, you know, your life isn't perfect because you're white and that, you know, not all white people are rich or not all white people are whatever you want to say, but it's just, I go through all the same things you do and something else. Like I also am black too. So it's like, yes, I acknowledge that your life is hard and I have all of those same hardships too, but you don't have to face what it's like being a racial minority or like me, I have all of these privileges, but I don't know what it's like to be, you know, LGBTQ. Like I, like they have all, like, especially like someone who's black and LGBTQ. Yeah. We have the same experience, but I'm straight. So I will never understand what they have. And I'll always have an advantage to them. So it's like, how am I going to use my straight privilege to help them feel more safe, even though we have the same racial experience. So that's what I would just add. Great. Um, talk about, um, is there any, what are, I, I know BYU did something on Instagram. Um, I think. I think it was Twitter. It was Twitter. Mm -hmm. I picked something up not too long after this event. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about what they did? Yeah. So they put up a post saying that they were like aware of what happened at the panel. Um, and that they, and they like reposted some of the church's statements about like how they condemn racism and how it's not allowed and how it's just wrong and against our church's values, which I'm glad that they responded quickly with that. Like, I appreciate that they said anything at all and on their like official platform, but I almost wish that it would have not been just on social media, but that it would have been like an email that was sent out to all students because, you know, not everyone has Twitter, not everyone has Instagram. And so, and they have the ability to send out a mass email, I assume very easily. So I wish they would have just said the same thing that they did, 
but send it out to everyone. So everyone's aware. And it's not just like the few people that have Twitter that are seeing this. So that's great. Was the content okay? Yeah, I thought it was okay. Um, I would like to see, I mean, they said that they're like looking into it, investigating it. And I know BYU has said that several times about a variety of issues, but I would just like some follow-up. So it's like, okay, you're investigating. What's the, what's the follow-up? Like, what's the, like, what did you find in this investigation? Who's doing the investigation? Um, so I would like to see some more of that. Um, but I am glad that they said like, this isn't just BYU trying to suppress your freedom of speech. Like this is our church principles. Like you cannot say these things because they are not in line with who we are as Latter-day Saints. And so I appreciate that they brought that angle to it because it's kind of hard to refute. Like if you're a member of this church, you have to abide by what it believes and it doesn't believe in racism. So. Talk about the Instagram account. Um, I don't know if Faith wants to talk about that or Grace. Oh, both of us. We're working together. Um, talk about the name of the, how people would find the account and the goal of the account. Um, we're starting a movement. It's called Stop Your Silence BYU. And so that's the name of the Instagram handle, Stop Your Silence BYU. Um, just kind of how Grace mentioned they did tweet, but that was the extent of what was done. And so um, especially people of color at BYU feel like their stories aren't being aren't being heard or are being told to people who aren't listening or there's just, there's not a space that's being made. There's not, it's like BYU just keeps forgetting to like put their plate out on the dinner table sort of a thing. And it's like, they don't feel invited to the party is like kind of what Grace mentioned earlier. And we want BYU to recognize that we want them to admit it. And we want them um, to make, make, legitimate, real, tangible efforts to move that forward. Something that would have to go, go past a tweet. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, talk more about if, if what you'd like them to do. Um, and I think one of the things you suggested, Grace, was like an email just out to right, all the mm-hmm. student yeah. bodies saying, this is not appropriate and this is our doctrine mm-hmm. and other things that BYU could do. You'd like to see them do. Um, I just really want these statements to come from the institution itself. Because it's powerful when individuals ally against people who are being marginalized, but it's really powerful when institutions ally um, with people who are being marginalized. And I mean, (laughs) I love BYU, but they have not done that very well. Um, Just by listening to the stories of people who feel marginalized, they have not felt supported by the institution of BYU. And in many cases, they felt the opposite instead. Um, and so I would love to hear, I mean, we have devotional addresses every Tuesday that fill the Marriott center. Um, and that is a perfect platform that, um, a message could be delivered that could really give BYU the opportunity to decide who it wants to be, to redefine, um, like the definition that it's currently giving itself. I love that. Um, this reminds me of a tweet I sent out um, where we ca- we call ourselves a peculiar people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know where that started, but I thought, why don't we be known as a compu- peculiar people by the way we treat others? Mm-hmm. And wouldn't it be cool as if I'm on a business trip or just, and people find out I'm LDS, they just, you have this radical love of everybody. Mm-hmm. 
um, and you're peculiar in the sense you just love everybody, and you your church seems to start with those that are on the margins first, uh, with the least privilege, and bring them in, and you seem to match the gospel of Jesus Christ and what Christ was doing, and and you're really peculiar that way, mm-hmm. and what BYU is doing and what their students stand for, and so that's. I mean, that's kind of one of my visions for the church and to be known that way. But it's that's where I get hope when I meet people like you two. Um, I just, somehow your generation is just wired different than my generation in a really good way. I don't buy any of the narrative that the, that you, you know, that the youth of today are not as faithful. I just think you see these issues better than our generation did. And and I love what you're doing um, as an ally of faith and what you're doing, Grace. And it gives me hope in the future of our society and our church. Um, politically, that, you know, we don't ever talk about politics in this podcast. Because <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know why. I just don't sure I know how to talk about politics and keep us all together. Because that's so divisive. But I certainly look at... Um, the politics I'm drawn to are the politics that first meet the needs of the most marginalized and want to bring them into moral inclusion because I look at that's what Christ did. So anyway, that's kind of some of my hopes for the future. And mm-hmm. um, anything else, either of you, I sometimes have a bunch of questions, but just I love what you're doing and I... I think people could say, well, don't start a new Instagram account or this isn't going to make a difference. But I, I recognize that really good things happen through people stepping into spaces that and making a change. So I would never sort of not encourage you to do what you're doing because mm-hmm. um, I recognize this platform of social media um, and stories that then can be a part of that can really change hearts and really move the needle. And is a great tool that I think, I believe, um, God brought into the hands of people whose voices haven't been able to be amplified, that they can be amplified in a broader way because of social media. Mm. And so I think it's cool what you want to do with this Instagram account. Thanks. And that's definitely not the limit of what we want to do. Yeah. Good. Tell us more. Um, we're just hoping to kind of use it as like an organizational force to... Um, gain support and awareness for for the issues that the campus is facing and to help us organize like more pointed and more deliberate, um, I don't know, activities, events to kind of help instigate real change because social media is cool, but it's definitely limited. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think I would just want to make clear to everyone that we're doing this because we love BYU and we love the church and we want it to be the best place that it can be. And so I'm not doing like, we're not doing this out of like hate or like vengeance or anything. Like we're doing this because we want BYU to be the church school that the gospel deserves. Like I hold BYU to a higher standard than any other university because it is like the, like it is the Lord's school. I mean, all BYU schools are, but like we are sponsored by the church. And so anything that BYU does reflects on the church. And so I want BYU to be the best that it can be so that it can be a good, like it can make the church look like what it should be. Um, and so if we can lead 
Like if BYU can be a leading force in changing these things and putting in these policies, then it's only going to make those, because there's plenty of non-member people that go to BYU. So if they can see like, oh, this church is doing great things and like the outside world can see that the school is doing great things, it only reflects well on the church. And so I care about the way the church looks and I care about our school. And so I don't want it to be, I don't want it to be seen as some racist school. So I'm trying to change (laughs) that. So It's really cool. Talk about if either of you want to in this last segment, um, Elder Stevenson released a statement, um, I believe, on Martin Luther King birthday mm-hmm. about the online manual and the printed manual not matching mm-hmm. and just condemning all forms of racism. Do you want to, or I assume you're aware of that, Grace? Yeah. Do you want to just share with our listeners as best as you can off the mm-hmm. cuff here? Yeah. Just that issue. Yeah. So in the printed manual, it was very like a very short paragraph, but it was kind of unclear and it kind of made it seem like the mark of the Lamanites and their skins was a sign of their like disobedience and that it was what the curse was. Um, but the online manual now is fixed and it's better. And the way that explains it, it's like the way that they look is not what the curse was. The curse of the Lamanites is that they were cut off from the presence of the Lord. And so that's all that it was. And we know that that curse was lifted. Um, and so I would invite everyone to go like scour the footnotes in those verses. Um, because the more you look at the footnotes, the more you realize that when they're referring to skin and white and black, they're talking about countenance, like not an actual skin tone. Um, and so, you know, when you are cut off from the presence of the Lord, like you're not going to be white in the sense that you're not going to have that like aura about you that comes when you live the gospel fully. Um, and so that's what it's referring to. Um, And then I would also encourage everyone to use the 1828 Webster's Dictionary. It's online Mm -hmm. and put in these words into that dictionary and see how Joseph would have understood these words. Because, you know, when he's interpreting the plates, he's using the words that he that best fit, because obviously it's not a word for word translation. So when he uses skin, he uses it in a different way than we do. Or when he's using white or like flint, I've heard people you it says flint in some of those verses to refer to a color. But in that dictionary, it means anything that's like proverbially hard. And so he's just emphasizing like how hard hearted they are. It's not talking about a color. Um, And so I think the more academically you look at those verses and really study them and understand what Joseph would have saw them as, it makes so much sense. Like, I don't have that question anymore. Like, is the Book of Mormon a racist book? I'm like, no, because I mean, yes. I mean, first of all, none of them were white, right? Like they all like there's no white people in the Book of Mormon. So I was like, they're all just varying shades of brown. Um, And so I mean, that's been a great experience for me to learn that and kind of disprove all those myths that we were taught. And just to remember that there's periods where the Nephites weren't righteous. There's periods where they both weren't righteous. There's periods where they were living together in harmony. So I think if the more we can get away from that narrative that the Lamanites were the dark skinned bad guys and the Nephites were these like white heroes, I think our church will be the better. Any thoughts on that, Faith? I disagree. Grateful for Grace and for... Um, she's put a lot of work into unpacking this and um, being able to teach other people about what the Book of Mormon is trying to explain. So, And I'm 58, our listeners, and I have looked at those scriptures in the Book of Mormon and interpret that as skin color. 
Um, and so I recognized that I had an incorrect interpretation of that. I About five years ago, I because we have so much symbolism in our church, I thought, well, that's more of a symbolism mm-hmm. um, and without skin color. And, that, and then with some of the things you just shared that I wasn't aware of, mm-hmm. um, it's become clear to me that that was never meant to be skin color. Mm-hmm. And that's just, you know, whatever that is, it's just you know, been framed up that way, whether that's, that's probably racism that's crept into our church and our teachings that is not consistent with what Christ taught and what God wants us to believe. And I, in our own Sunday, we're recording this on a Sunday listeners in our own Sunday school class, our good teacher, Kristen Anderson, who has a role at BYU uh, mm-hmm. um, in a program there in a graduate program she teaches there, brought this up in a very direct way and was willing to talk about this and talk about the um, race in the priesthood essay. And Mm -hmm. it was a great Sunday school class. And I just, you know, so many times we don't talk about this issue. We just skip over it. Mm -hmm. And there's, I recognize there's a lot of people that want to be educated to do the right thing, but we've got to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So um, kudos to her. And, and, but we just need to talk about this. If Mm -hmm. we're going to eliminate racism, Mm-hmm. we've got to talk about it and identify it and recognize it in our past. And she was really good about saying, you've got to recognize this in our past and honor the pain. If you dismiss the pain mm-hmm. and don't honor the pain, then you're not, you're not letting people move on and you're mm-hmm. dismissing the difficult of the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would just say, I hope everyone learns to ask difficult questions about the gospel. I think you'll be the better for it. Um, I mean, the whole reason why the gospel was restored is because Joseph asked a controversial question. Like he asked a question that was not acceptable in his time and we have the gospel because of it. So if there's something about church history or church doctrine or something that kind of like rubs you the wrong way, like don't just put it off, like research it, like find the answers. You know, we're all entitled to personal revelation. And I think God's just waiting to give us these answers, but we're just too scared So just kind of humble yourself. And I think there's so much that you can learn and your faith will grow so much as you just learn to answer those questions. I'd add that the restoration of the gospel, we know it's ongoing and it's also never been passive. Um, So we can't be expecting for this progress to be made without our active effort. Um, And I think, or I know I have a testimony that race relations and our ability to treat our brothers and sisters as our brothers and sisters is a part of that restoration and God is counting on us to be able to do that. And it's going to require a lot of discomfort, especially on the on the part of white people. Um, I had an experience this week trying to respond with all this stuff happening. I just wasn't sure that I had acted in the way that was best and the most productive. And so I spoke with my friend and I asked her if she'd felt uncomfortable with what I had done or if I should have gone about it a different way. And we talked about some of the some things that could have gone better and that weren't ideal. And then we both just, she just shared with me, like, this is just a hard thing. It's hard for you. It's hard for me, but we just going to have to communicate. And it was like, I felt like she was extending me mercy and grace. And, um, I, it just really hit me how important it was just to talk about it. And for, this is an uncomfortable thing to talk about it. Okay. Well then I guess we should talk about it and we can help each other learn and grow. And, um, so yeah, that's what I would add. Grace, any final thoughts? No, I think this has been great. Go ask questions. Don't be afraid. Be 
learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And yeah, I think we'll make progress that way. That's great. Uh, thank you too for being on our podcast. It does give me and our listeners hope for the future. And I believe that what's happening at BYU is sometimes, even though it's difficult and choppy and there's setbacks like you experienced, that I do believe that BYU is sometimes leading the church in some of these efforts. Mm -hmm. And I look to BYU in that way. And it doesn't mean we just sit back and do nothing in our congregations, but I think we can all make progress in this space within our congregations and other church-owned schools. And But I do recognize some of the things that happen at BYU and the conversations that are happening are very helpful, but we do have more work to do. So Faith Williams and Grace Solberg, thank you for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Mm-hmm.